0: For those of you who don't know, every, every week on Friday an email goes out called The One. And there's a button on that email. If you click it, it will take you to uh, a website on our church's website that uh, has a short devotional in it that is meant to prepare your heart for today. And there's also on the sidebar a place where you can listen to all the music that we're going to be singing. Or that we have sung, as is the case today. And I just want to say, after I preach today, if you go back and you listen to the songs that we just sang, you will hear the sermon. All I'm doing is just giving a little nuance to it. It's such a joy to preach after singing everything that we've just sung and hearing everything that we've just sung. Do you feel like you could have written that song I mean, do those lyrics, could that have been a personal testimony for you? Have you ever ever gotten to the place where you just said, Lord, I'm tired. I've given it all I've got. If so, then the letter of Hebrews that we've been studying and we're going to continue in today, it's written for your ears. Because the writer of Hebrews, we don't know a lot about him. But we know a lot about its audience because of the context clues that are all throughout the book. And this is a weary group of people, a people that have been suffering persecution for their faith. It's addressed to the Hebrews, so we believe that there were probably a small group of Jewish believers who had placed their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, and because of that, were suffering great persecution. We pick up on some of those clues, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 10, which says this. Whoops. Lord, I'm tired. Thank you. That was my fault. I hit the back button. Hebrews 10 says, but recall the former days after you were enlightened, You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And it's not just that they were persecuted in the past. We, we pick up that they were presently being persecuted in chapter 13. Remember those who are in prison, the writer says, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in one body. This is a tired, beaten, afflicted, persecuted group of people. The voices that are shouting at them aren't being so kind as to say, boy, you've given it all you've got. Why don't you just throw in the towel? These voices are shouting, deny your faith or suffer the plundering of your property, imprisonment, or even death. And to this weary, afflicted people, the writer of Hebrews today is saying, keep running, keep fighting, keep reaching, the pain cannot compare to the reward that will be yours, that waits in store for those who just keep running. Where we get into trouble is when we start doubting that. The, the ability to keep running and persevering through the fight, that ability hinges Upon our confidence or our hope of the reward. If at any time in the race we begin questioning whether the reward is worth it or whether it's real at all, then relieving the crucible of our suffering or improving our present circumstances becomes preeminent. Perseverance requires hope. Say that again. Perseverance requires hope. Now, I want to share with you an illustration that requires a disclaimer. One of my dearest friends in all the world led us in worship today. Trent Anthony has been uh, leading beside me and leading us for almost a decade now. And the last time that I preached, about six months ago, Trent led worship that day. And he gave me an introduction that I wasn't expecting, in which he used pictures from my younger years. I didn't know if he would attempt that again today, but wisdom told me that I should prepare. So with that as a disclaimer... Tim Keller gives a perfect illustration in his book, Making Sense of God. He says this, imagine that you have two men of identical socioeconomic status, the same educational level, and even the same temperament. You hire both of them, and you say to each of them, you are part of an assembly line, and I want you to put part A into slot B and then hand what you have assembled to someone else. I want you to do that over and over again for eight hours a day. You put them in identical rooms with identical lighting, temperature, and ventilation. You give them the very same number of breaks in a day. It is very boring work. Their conditions are the very are the same in every way except for one difference. You tell the first man that you're going to pay him $30,000 at the end of the year. And you tell the second man you're going to pay him 30 million. After a couple of weeks, the first man will be saying Isn't this tedious? Isn't it driving you insane? Aren't you thinking about quitting? And the second man will say, no. This is perfectly acceptable. In fact, I whistle while I work. That's what what that guy's doing on on the right. What is going on? You have two human beings who are experiencing identical circumstances in radically different ways. What makes the difference? It is their expectation of the future. What we believe about our future completely controls how we experience our present. He says we are irreducibly hope-based creatures. Today, God wants to grant us such unshakable confidence in His promise and in His oath. He wants us to see that our hope is anchored, unmovable and unwavering. This hope, secured by Jesus, our high priest, is that the glorious presence and peace of God are yours now and for all eternity. No matter how dire your circumstances may appear, no matter how much you've suffered or you are currently suffering, even though you feel your legs cannot put one foot forward in this race called life, today God is telling us Jesus died to win this race. What Christ accomplished when he died on the cross was not freedom to quit this race or to stop running, but the enabling power to run it. To paraphrase John Piper, what he bought was not the nullification of our wills as though we didn't have to run, but the empowering of our wills because we want to run for the glory of his name. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Let's pray that God would confirm these truths on our hearts, that we might hold fast to this hope to the very end. Pray with me. God, today you are going to set before us something that's really inconceivable for us to wrap our minds around, that you would need to... Do more than just speak a promise to us. You, the God of creation, would need to do more than just promise us something for us to believe you. is really a shame on us. But you have. You've done more than just promise. You have secured for us a hope that is an objective reality and not a subjective feeling. And so today, give us faith to believe, and to endure, and to persevere. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Last week, Dr. Merkel, Ben, brought us a stern warning that if we are not maturing in the faith, if we are not moving from milk to meat, then we are in peril of drifting towards apostasy, which is a big word that means basically to deny the faith. Ben showed us that this warning found in Hebrews 6 was not written to scare the Hebrew believers as much as it was to encourage them to keep running, to keep fighting. And our text today is going to solidify that the author's desire is to encourage them to persevere because of the surety of their hope. And this hope is... Is not only tantamount to our ability to persevere in the faith; it is the most glorious, encouraging tactical weapon God has given us in the fight. Now, give you a little hint: hope is the secret to Creswellian joy. So, last week's text ended this way: It said, "For land, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it." and produces a crop useful for those for whose sake it's cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. In other words, just as the rain falls to the earth and blesses as a blessing from God, that good crops and fruit might grow, and bless us the author is telling these jewish believers that if god has blessed them with the good news of the gospel and they have received it just as the earth receives the blessed rain then the evidence of it being received and being cherished is going to be good fruit produced in their lives and this is not a this is not a new idea jesus spoke of this in matthew chapter 7 where he told us that Our lives will bear fruit, and we will be known by that fruit. He said that thorn bushes don't produce grapes. You can't pick apples from poison oak. Don't try. We recognize what a person believes by the fruit that their lives produce. And for the writer of Hebrews, this this gives him great consolation about this young house church. Look at the next verses. Though we speak in this way... Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints, just as you still do. So the rebuke that was given to us last week that we read in verses 1 through 8 is followed by a pat on the back and some affirmation and assurance and comfort. They have been producing good fruit, fruit that God will not and cannot overlook. They were serving one another in very sacrificial, loving ways. Remember what we read of the description of their persecution. It said that they were publicly exposed to reproach and to affliction and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. They had compassion on those in prison. And joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. They were loving one another in very tangible ways. And the writer of Hebrews says that God takes notice of that. But their love for one another was not founded on moralistic or meritorious good works. It was founded in their love for the name of the Lord. Look at that verse. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints, as you still still do. They served one another beautifully in sacrificial ways because their love was first for God and then for one another. Isn't that how the greatest commandments work? First, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then you love your neighbor as yourself. I love the way that John Piper says it because if we get those two switched around, we can't endure. He says like this, trying to serve the saints without being satisfied first with the beauty of God, His grace and power and wisdom and truth and goodness and justice is like setting out across the desert in search of paradise without any water bottles and with no guide and with no assurance that there are oases to replenish you. Your service will fatigue, wither, and ultimately snuff out. It has no staying power. Love for the name of God has to be a prerequisite to our service to one another, or we will burn out. And here, the writer of Hebrews is directing his readers and us to the source of persevering faith. But we'll get there in just a second. First, look at the next verses, 10 through 12. Again, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire... Each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Here we see why the writer of Hebrews rebuked them as he did last week. He was afraid that they were not pressing on as they should. The author desires the diligence or earnestness with which they had shown in serving the saints to be applied toward having a full assurance of the hope until the end. So the same work ethic driven by their love for God has to be applied to remembering and having confidence in God's promises that we have not yet seen fulfilled because having faith in God's promises, is the foundation of our hope. I want to say that again. Listen carefully. Having faith in God's promises is the foundation of our hope. Again, John Piper says it better than I can. He says, the first business of the Christian life is to find God satisfying because of who He is now. That is called loving Him and because of what He will be for you in the future. That is called hoping in Him. And almost as a precursor to what the author is going to say in chapter 11, he calls us and this church to be imitators of the faithful, patient witnesses who have gone before them and who have inherited the promises. And for a Hebrew, there is no greater example than the father of their nation, Abraham. The story of Abraham spans 14 chapters in the book of Genesis, begins in chapter 12, ends in chapter 25, and would have been as familiar to the members of this little house church as is the story of Jesus' to us. He is the father of the Jewish faith. So in order for you to better understand the illustration that the author is about to use of Abraham's life, I'd like to give you a quick review on Abraham's story as told by some grade school kids. Watch this. Thank you. So, Abraham was not always perfect in his faithfulness to obeying God's commands. He had 25 years of waiting between when he received the promise to begin with and when Isaac was born. And during that time, he grew tired and impatient, and he tried to usurp God's plan by fathering a child through his maidservant, Hagar, that mistake would change the course of history, but it did not thwart God's promises or His plan. Abraham would father Isaac, Isaac would father Jacob, and Jesus would be born later on in the family tree. The author of Hebrews uses a specific part of Abraham's story to make a point to his readers. Look at verse 13. in Abraham's story that the video skipped over. After waiting 25 years for God to deliver on his promise of a son, Abraham and Sarah rejoiced at the birth of Isaac. But God had another test of Abraham's faith that to us really sounds inconceivable. In Genesis chapter 22 It says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, Here am I. He said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. The son of promise the child they had waited their whole lives to hold, their only son. God was asking Abraham the most difficult question a parent has to answer. God was asking, do you love and trust me more than you love the gift that I have given you, Isaac? Abraham's response to God's command is almost as inconceivable You see, Abraham had learned that God keeps his word, even when it seems impossible. Abraham's faith and patience had been rewarded by God and resulted in the birth of his son, even though Abraham was 100 years old when it happened. We read Genesis 22 today, and we think, how could God ask him to do that? I could never do that. But I want you to think about Abraham's whole existence, where he lived, the makeup of his family, his very name had been changed by God. How big was Abraham's faith in God? Hebrews 11 tells us it was so big that Abraham believed that even if he offered Isaac as a sacrifice, God could resurrect him from the dead. Again, for us, that's not quite so inconceivable. But when Abraham lived, God hadn't resurrected anybody yet. Hebrews 11, "'By faith, when he was tested, Abraham offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, "'Through Isaac shall your offspring be named.'" He considered God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figurative, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So, Abraham rose early the next morning, saddled the donkey, gathered wood, and headed toward Moriah with Isaac. And there he laid his only child On an altar, raised a knife over him, and as he was getting ready to bury it into his son, God said, Stop. And here is where we see the promise and the oath that God swears to Abraham that is in our text today Genesis 22, verse 16. God said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. from what we've sung already this morning. Uh, I'm trying to think of the second verse of, it's the second verse of Yes in Christ. Go back and listen to it. Um, this, this was not the first time Abraham has received these promises from the Lord. It's not even the second time The first time he received these promises was in Genesis chapter 12. The second time it was reiterated in Genesis 18. But the author of Hebrews quotes the third time for a very specific reason. Look with me again at our text. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath." In our broken world, an oath is a confirmation that truth is being given. We see oaths taken in courtrooms when testimonies are being shared. and When those oaths are taken, a man or a woman places their hand on the Bible and they swear to tell the truth, so help them God. Richard Phillips, in his commentary, says this. He says, when men make an oath... They swear by something greater than themselves, typically by God, thereby inviting the wrath of the greater power should they violate that oath. God, however, stands beneath no one and no thing. There is nothing greater than He, nor higher name than His own, so that if God is to swear an oath, He must do so by His own name. So the writer of Hebrews is telling this church, and through the power of the Spirit telling us today, that God, the maker of heaven and earth, the all-powerful, omniscient, omnipresent King of kings, Lord of lords, desired you to have such confidence and such full assurance of hope that He confirmed His promise with an oath. And swore by his own name that it would happen or else he be damned. Because his own wrath would be unleashed upon himself. That's heavy. But let's think about this. God does not need oaths. He is infallibly trustworthy, and yet here he swore an oath. Why? Richard Phillips says he did so to accommodate the weakness of our faith. He did not make this oath to satisfy himself. He did so because we are so slow to trust him our faith is so fragile. We live in a world broken by sin, and our doubts seize any and every opportunity to strangle our faith. We spend years harboring a habitual sin and coddling it and not putting it to death. And then one day we decide that it's not a good idea, so we start We start trying to put it to get to death, that anger or that lust or that anxiety, and we find it difficult. And what we do is we wonder if God really loves us. If He did, this would be easier. Or a husband betrays his wife, and all of a sudden, we're left wondering if God is really in control of all things. Or you get a call from the doctor with bad news. And even though you know that all men die, and that the express, one of the express purposes of the gospel is that it would give us hope beyond this life, we get angry at God. We shake our fists at Him and we ask how He could be so cruel. But God cannot show you how much He loves you More than what he did by sending Christ to die for your sin. God cannot show you how much more he is in control than the fact that he spoke the universe into existence. And Colossians Colossians 1 tells us he is holding it together as we speak. And God cannot give you a more convincing testimony of his determination to keep all of His promises, than to swear by Himself that they will be done. Look with me at verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to this hope set before us. God's purpose in convincing you that no power in hell and no scheme of man could ever thwart His promises to you is that you might have strong encouragement to hold fast, that your faith would not be shaken, but you, were, you would persevere. Abraham's journey of faith began at 75, but he did not receive the promise of Isaac until he was 100 years old. He was plagued with doubts and obstacles. Yes, Abraham showed heroic faith, but at other times, he was cowardly. But Abraham persevered. He kept running. He never abandoned his faith in God. And in fact, each time he chose to trust God, he obtained a stronger stride, a better grip on God's promises. Some of you are plagued with doubt and have what appear to you to be insurmountable obstacles before you. Today, God has doubled down on his promises to you by two unchangeable things those two things are his promise and his oath that's why the christian's hope can never fail we sing such glorious lyrics in this church and i try so often to help you see the connection between the bible and what we're singing you'll recognize the fourth verse of the Christian's hope can never fail and its connection
1: to Hebrews chapter 6. We trust upon the sacred word, the oath and promise of the Lord, and safely through each tempest sail. Oh, the Christian's hope can never fail. Though each of us will
0: undoubtedly navigate rough seas, and some of us sail through tempests, our hope, the anchor of, he, of he, the, uh, the author of Hebrews says, is an anchor for the soul. It's immutable, it's irrevocable. And it's not a subjective feeling, like, I hope that God will accept me and allow me into heaven. It is an objective future hope. What anchors our souls is not a subjective feeling, it's an objective reality. Listen to the way our text concludes today. He says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Thomas Schreiner says this, he says, the inviolable promise of God is not an abstract truth unrelated to life. It is intended to give strong encouragement to believers. They are assured that God will fulfill what He has promised. The encouragement furnished to the readers is that the hope that they have staked their lives on will become reality. They should persevere to the end with confidence and joy knowing that God will fulfill His eschatological promises. That would be the promises of a new heaven and a new earth and a rest that we will enter into. What does it mean that this hope enters into the inner place behind the curtain? Well, Within the Jewish temples, there is a room, an inner sanctum, separated from the rest of the temple by a curtain or a veil. It was the place where the high priests would go each year to meet with God on the day of atonement. Any unauthorized or unsanctioned entering of that room resulted in death. Not at the hands of men, but by God. He struck them down. It was so dangerous to enter this room that when the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement, they would tie a rope around his ankle just in case he violated any part of the cultus that goes on within the, the, the ceremony and he'd be struck down dead. They could then pull him out. The Holy of Holies, as they called it, represented the presence of God among the people. The writer of Hebrews is saying that the hope we've been given anchors our souls against life's tempests and enters into the inter-sanctum, the inner place behind the curtain where the presence of God resides. Richard Phillips says this, anchors are a clear and familiar image of security, yet there is something special about this anchor. In Hebrews chapter 6, every other anchor goes down into the sea, but this anchor goes up into heaven. So to give you a visual image of what the author is saying, I'd like two volunteers. I'd like a child and their dad to help me illustrate this. Children, you can go ahead and nominate your parents. So I need a child and a dad. Any child, any dad... Any child and any dad, there we go, come on up, come on up, give them a hand. They had no idea they were doing this. I did not plant them. First service, I picked this rope up and uh, it was, come on up, come on up on the stage. And there was a, it was, it looked like a noose, it was tied in a knot. And the dad was like, I have no idea what I've got myself into. So what's your name? This is Sophia. Everybody say hi Sophia. hi Sophia. And your name? John. John, everybody say hi John. hi John. So Sophia, this rope represents your faith. You did not make this rope. This rope was given to you by Christ. He gave it to you and he gave you the ability to latch onto it. It is anchored to heaven. <laughs> did your wife ever call you heavenly? Well, she might after today. I don't know. So you you've got the other end of the rope, John. You you are heaven, all right? Now, this is the deal. You live here and now, so you can't see heaven. It is behind the curtain. So, John, as handsome as you are, I'm going to ask you to go behind the curtain. All right? Now, it is the lights are out. It's dark back there. Good news is, we cleaned up everything, so hopefully you won't trip on anything. So, there he is. Heaven, you can't see heaven. You've been told that you are anchored there. It is, it is there, and it is held. Now, your dad's pretty strong, right? You don't think you could yank that out of his hand, do you? Probably not. That's, that is also true of heaven. You, this is a sure hope that you have. Now, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that life is going to come, and it's going to push you around, and it's going to try to yank this out of your hand. This is the good news. Not only what by what Christ has accomplished in dying, not only has he secured that end to heaven, he has secured this end to your hands. And he won't let you let it go. He will enable you to hold on. What the author of Hebrews is worried about is that you'll say, Okay, well, I'm tired of all this pushing around that heaven does, I mean that the the world does, this tempest that I'm in, and I want to let go of the rope. And he's saying, no, no, no. If you let go of this rope, what's at the other end? The other end is worth it. And so he's going to give you the power to hold on and that end can't be let, let go either. And slowly but surely, he's going, to, he's going to get you there, to that inner place where the presence of God resides. And where the presence of God is, is joy forevermore. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's, it's much better than a $30 million salary per year for sticking part A into slot B. What's beyond there is, is uh, infinitely better. Does that make sense? All right, give, give them a hand. Come on out, John. Well done. So I hope, I hope that helps you get an image of what the writer's saying. And I hope that it will make the second verse of Christ the solid rock all the more glorious to you. You've sung it a bunch, but I want you to hear it now through the lens
1: of Hebrews chapter 6. When darkness seems to hide His face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Yes, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. All other the ground is sinking sand.
0: Today, many of you are in the midst of a stormy gale, or there is one on the horizon. Some of you are walking the crucible of despair and loneliness, or betrayal and deception. Some of you have become sluggish and lazy in your battle against the flesh. You've grown weary, and rather than persevering, you've grown dull and lethargic. You need to reacquaint yourselves with those who through faith and patience inherited the promise, and you should imitate them. God has doubled down on His promises to you. He has given His promise and His oath that you might be encouraged to hold fast to this hope that He has given you that you would have an unshakable confidence in Him, and that the hope of your future reward will help you to keep running. Remember, what Christ bought for you when He died was not freedom from having to run this race, but the enabling power to run it. You need to remember that you've not been promised a 30000 dollar a year salary, you've been promised infinitely more. And that is how a five foot six, diabetic, receding hairline, average intelligence, North Carolinian named Daniel Cresswell maintains joy in the midst of life's tempests. And that's how you do too. Hold fast to this hope, unwavering, secured for you by Jesus. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. We're going to sing what we've just sung. And I want to invite you to recommit yourself to this race and to running it well front is open as a place of prayer. Our pastors and elders and ministry leaders are available to pray with you as you hold fast to this assurance. But would you pray with me? Lord, our faith is so fragile and we feel we feel so foolish for not trusting you when we see what you have done to convince us of the unwavering hope that we have. God, give us confidence of its objective reality, and may that help us persevere. May it help us run this race well, set before us uh, this great hope, and help us to hold fast. We pray in Christ's name, amen.